So, I first started writing songs seriously when I was about 19 or 20. I was not a very good guitar player. Uh, you, know, you might not say I'm a very good guitar player now, but I was definitely not a good guitar player then. I had just started learning to play, but I knew enough chords to like put something under the melodies and words that I found pouring out of me. And there was this one summer, particularly, this was when I was in college, so it was like I didn't have classes, and I had this time to have a pretty prolific season of songwriting. I could spend extended time journaling, turning over memories, recollections, reflections, and creating songs out of them. In the beginning, I wasn't really writing for anyone but myself. I didn't have a vision to play these songs in public. I just had something internally that needed to be said. It had been a couple of years of opening up wounds that I hadn't wanted to look at, wounds that went back to my young childhood. And yet, refusing to look at these hard parts of my life had divorced me from myself. As a theater student, performing a character became my form of escape. I was well-versed at taking on someone else's skin, perfecting someone else's image. But sitting in my own self, in my own story, that was terrifying. It took struggles with an eating disorder, thoughts of suicide, coming to the end of my faulty coping strategies, as well as an encounter with a God who seemed real and loving and able to care for me in all my mess. It took all of that to encourage me to go in rather than out for my identity. And writing songs became the way I sifted through what was there. The songs were a mixture of memory and story. They were all connected to what I was processing, but they didn't all have to correspond in some factual autobiographical way to my own life, right? The ideas, the images, the stories my songs told were like colors on a palette that a painter might employ. I'd choose the range of colors that communicated like what I was trying to understand or express in myself, And the mood and meaning evoked by that color in each song was true. The details didn't need to be. Well, we're coming to the end of our origin stories series. We've been looking at stories from the very beginning of the Bible, considering what they can tell us about the faith we've inherited, the God we're trying to explore and worship. And our primary question with these ancient stories has been so far, not what happened, but why did the people of God tell this story? Why did the people of God tell this story? Now, all the stories we've looked at so far have been from Genesis. But today, uh, as our final kind of teaching in the series, we're going to take a look at a final origin story that carries a lot of weight in the Jewish and Christian faith, the Exodus story. Now, truthfully, Exodus could be like a whole series on its own. We're not doing that. In the context of this origin story series, we're just going to consider the tale in really broad strokes and think about, in this bigger conversation about origin tales, what should we draw from this Exodus tale? What does it bring the people of God who told the story? How might understanding that 
bring insight and meaning to us. So where do we start? The Exodus is a story that many of us may have grown up hearing in church or perhaps synagogue. Even if we didn't grow up in a religious community, we might have seen the story play out in dramatic fashion in a movie like The Ten Commandments. I'm put that up, Elliot. Remember this? Charlton Heston, Yul Brynner, battling over whether Yul was going to let the people go. Okay? For those of you who may or may not know it, we're just going to recap the basics of the tale. All right? The story begins where Genesis left off and where we left off a couple weeks ago. Okay, at the end of the Joseph story. Remember that Jacob's family had come to Egypt to find food in a season of famine, found that the brother had, that they had expelled, Joseph, now leads the nation as Pharaoh's right-hand man. Reconciliation takes place. All of Jacob's extended family moves to Egypt. But generations later, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph are now thriving, but the new Egyptian leadership is paranoid. The descendants, known as Hebrews, are enslaved and further oppressed. Then there's the execution of baby Hebrew boys that's ordered and in some places carried out. But at least one young baby escapes, right? A baby boy whose mother hides him in a basket, releases it to the Nile River. His sister Miriam follows the little boat until it finds its way to an Egyptian princess who subversively chooses to take the Hebrew child with her to the palace, name him Moses, raise him as her own. Well, as an adult, Moses struggles with his identity. He ends up in trouble in Egypt and flees to a place called Midian in the desert, where he settles down and migrates, or marries, sorry. And then decades later, he encounters a bush that burns, but isn't consumed. And from the bush, the voice of a deity speaks to him. We have this on the screen, Elliot. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. Maybe we don't. The God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the voice says. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a land that is both good and spacious, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses is skeptical. He feels inadequate to the task. But the God who calls themselves, I am who I am, pronounced something like Yahweh, will not take no for an answer. And eventually Moses goes, assisted by his brother Aaron and aided by a number of like magical proofs coming from this God. But Pharaoh's heart is hard. He doesn't want to let the people go. And so begin the plagues that put the pressure on Egypt to comply with the request of Moses, Aaron, and Yahweh. The first is the Nile River. It turns to blood. Then there's a plague of frogs. And on it goes. Gnats, flies, dying livestock, and so on. Until finally, the tenth, most dreadful plague arrives because Pharaoh still won't budge. With the tenth plague... The Hebrews are instructed to kill a lamb and paint their doorways with the blood. They're told that the angel of death is moving through and will take the firstborn of every household, but will pass over the homes with lamb's blood on the frame. This is what the Jewish people would ever commemorate to this day in their Passover meal. This event, how God preserved them and their children through it. Sure enough, the angel of death descends. One morning, every house in Egypt that hasn't been passed over awakes to heartbreak. A child has died. Pharaoh's house is included. He relents, 
the Hebrew people quickly get out of Egypt. And then not long after he comes to his senses and his anger, Pharaoh has a change of heart. He sends his chariots after the Hebrew slaves. The people are camped in front of a body of water, the Red Sea. And when they see Pharaoh's army coming, they naturally freak out. They feel trapped. They assume they're all about to be massacred. But God tells Moses not to worry. God's going to do something awesome and unexpected, even after all the miraculous plagues that have already been performed. So then there's this fiery pillar of cloud inhabiting this powerful deity that separates the formerly enslaved Hebrews from the Egyptian army, provides a layer of protection. And then Moses stretches out his staff over the Red Sea, and then what, and what happens is the most dramatic miracle yet. Picking it up, the story in Exodus 14, verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand toward the sea, and the Lord drove the sea apart by a strong east wind all that night. And he made the sea into dry land, and the water was divided. So the Israelites went through the middle of the sea on dry ground, the water forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians chased them and followed them into the middle of the sea. All the horses of Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. In the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw the Egyptian army into a panic. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's flee from Israel, for the Lord fights for them against Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, extend your hand towards the sea so that the waters may flow back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. So Moses extended his hand toward the sea and the sea returned to its normal state when the sun began to rise. And now the Egyptians were fleeing before it, but the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the middle of the sea. The water returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that was coming after the Israelites into the sea. Not so much as one of them survived. And that's the climax. The big moment of deliverance. That's the heart of Exodus. Right? The story goes on from there as the people come to Mount Sinai. They're given the law. They're cared for as they wander in the desert for 40 years. They have their various adventures. But that event, the event that will shape much of Jewish and Christian identity and memory going forward is what we just looked at. God delivering God's people out of slavery in Egypt. So how should we interpret this story? What are we to do with it? What meaning did this event have to the people of Israel? How did they understand it? And what meaning might it have for us? How can we understand it and draw meaning from it? As I've been thinking about it this week, I've been thinking that there's like a few directions we could go in. The first is to consider the history. To consider the history. We might have lots of questions about historicity of this story. Okay? If you want to fill in the blank, that's the first one. Consider the history. Did this actually happen? Is that why the people of God told it? We may wonder if it did happen the way the text describes. What do we do with the parts of the story that reinforce a fairly frightening tribalistic picture of God? Because some would say that's there. You may have grown up in a fairly conservative, traditional religious framework. And if so, perhaps you were told that this, these Exodus stories, you were told them from an early age, and they were probably told to you as history. 
You may have even been told that Moses himself wrote them down, that Exodus is sort of an autobiographical recollection of his experience. He wrote it along with the other first four books of the Bible, the Torah, as our Jewish friends call them. However, if you've been here for teachings in this series already, you may remember that that explanation for the origin of the first five books of the Bible is most certainly not accurate. The near scholarly consensus, based on many factors, is that these early books of the Bible seem to be composed by people in Israel likely compiling multiple authors woven together after the return of a remnant of Israel from exile to Babylon. So after the exile is finished, a group of the Israelites who still remain come back to Israel to rebuild the temple, to start again. And that is when these books seem to have been written down. Most scholars would put that around 5th century B.C. The Exodus, if such a thing took place, was at least seven centuries before that. So a long time, right? A long time between when the story may have happened and when it was written down. Not anything like a first-person account. So does that mean Exodus may not have happened? If the Exodus account itself can't be relied upon as a first-person account, what else might testify to its historical truth? Well, well, most scholars would then say, we've got to look at archaeological evidence. But that's problematic, because there is no real evidence of anything along the lines of the scope of the event that seems to be described. The Nile River turning to blood the other plagues, or even a couple of million people, which is the number that Exodus names, departing from Egypt, traveling through the desert for 40 years, and landing eventually in Canaan. We can't find any archaeological evidence of those things. There's also nothing in Egyptian literature from the period that would tell us this occurred. Nothing specifically mentioning Hebrew slaves, Although they do at times talk about something called Asiatic slaves. So maybe, maybe the Hebrews are included in generally those slaves uh, from the east of Egypt. There's certainly nothing in Egyptian ancient literature talking about God defeating Pharaoh in a major way at the Red Sea. Now that alone doesn't mean it didn't happen, right? History is usually written in the, by the victors, not the defeated. Maybe they just didn't want to put it in their propaganda. But it's worth noting. Still, lest we conclude the whole thing just must be a fiction, there are pieces within the text itself that do seem to lend it some credence, particularly the fact that there seem to be at least some Egyptian influence in the names, dates, stories that Exodus relates. They do correspond to names, dates, events that are attested in Egyptian literature. So that's worth noting. A lot of contemporary scholars would say the story may be in good part legend, but it's likely based on some sort of historical event. Maybe it's on a smaller scale than what's described. But probably there was some experience of some group of Hebrew slaves being delivered from slavery in Egypt, and the story evolved over time. So where does that leave us with this whole question about history? I would posit this as a potential conclusion 
Israel's telling of the Exodus may communicate a story that's based on an actual historical event, but if such an event occurred, the story was shaped and transcribed centuries after it, right? So here's what I say. The Exodus story's value wasn't in communicating historical data. As much as sharing an important perspective on the identity of Yahweh and Yahweh's connection to Israel. Does that make sense? Doesn't mean that there was no Exodus. I'm not. I'm. I'm, I'm I feel like agnostic on that point. But I don't think that's the core reason this story mattered. Right. Certainly, people may disagree with that, and that's fine. But I'm just saying, from what we have, the Exodus story value wasn't primarily in communicating historical data as much as sharing an important perspective on the identity of Yahweh and Yahweh's connection to Israel. So how else can we think about this story? What else might help us kind of unlock it? Another direction we could go in is trying to interpret the tale by considering the neighbors. That's, what I, that's the next fill in the blank. Consider the neighbors. That means asking how might this story be in dialogue with other ancient cultures and the stories they told? How does this story sit alongside other stories of faith from other ancient peoples? Does knowing that help us understand it or why it was told? It turns out that opening up this line of inquiry reveals that there is a lot there to explore, more than we can get into. For example, scholars who study ancient Egypt will point out that the plagues as described, seem to all be specifically chosen to counter various Egyptian deities. Look at the first one, turning the Nile to blood. Okay, scholar Peter Enns points out that as the source of life in Egypt, the Nile was worshipped as a deity. In turning the river to blood, he points out, Yahweh was showing his power over this Egyptian god. And this continues in a different way with each plague, all the way up through the last. Each of them corresponds with some sort of Egyptian god. And the last is the plague on the firstborn. The god of the dead in Egypt was Osiris. Enns puts it this way. I have this quote up here. By controlling death on Osiris' home turf, Yahweh has Osiris in a headlock and is moving in for the pin. Enns is making the argument that if you miss this part of the story that was intentionally told as Yahweh defeating in like a in a, like a cage match against the gods of Egypt you're missing a core component of that part of the story then we get into the parting of the sea encounter itself jewish bible scholar joshua berman has recently discovered how closely this tale seems to parallel and be in dialogue with the story of egypt's great victory over their enemy the hittites in the battle of kadesh okay so Just to clarify, so Egypt had their own big epic victory with Pharaoh leading it, where people were drowned in a big thing of water, in a big body of water. And that story, evidence has has made clear, was basically used as propaganda. And there were memorials set all throughout ancient Egypt in the era where, where if there were Hebrew slaves in Egypt, they would have been there. Does that make sense? So everyone living in the region of Egypt would have heard this story. It was kind of the big epic story that shows how strong and mighty Pharaoh is and how you would never want to cross Pharaoh. Does that make sense? 
It was a sort of propaganda from the state that would have, was all over ancient Egypt. And what's really interesting is, uh, I think he, he argues pretty convincingly, I'm not going to get into the details, um, that there are all these places where that story seems to have been appropriated by the authors of Exodus. Not only in the images and the narrative parallels, but even with specific terms that have been borrowed. I have a picture. I don't know if you can see it. The, the next slide. This is just a little bit of, of kind of, this was where everyone was. This is what everyone would have seen. You see this big battle. You see a river uh, where part of the story is the, the army that Pharaoh is vanquishing is drowned. So, that's considering the neighbors. Where does that take us? I'm going to say here's a possible conclusion from those. Seeing parallels with other texts, if you can give us the next slide, Elliot, the next conclusion, can provide what I say is helpful context for how this story may have been developed and some of its aims in defining Israel against its neighbors. Okay, does that make sense? It gives us helpful context for how the story may have been developed and some of its aims in defining Israel against its neighbors. But this alone doesn't show us why this story carries such power and importance in Jewish and Christian faith. So if it's not history and it's not comparison to ancient texts that can unlock the story for us, what might? I think the answer is actually in the words of the text itself, that come right after our story concludes. And these are the words of a song. So my third suggestion is we consider the song. Eugene Peterson is an author, theologian, longtime pastor, who has a deep reverence for the poetry in the Bible. Believing that much of the meaning of these stories is held in actually understanding that the biblical writers were poets or songwriters. Just this week, he was on On Being, the NPR show with Krista Tippett. And in that interview, he talked about the importance of the Bible's use of poetry. I have a quote from it I'll put up. Can you give us the next slide, Elliot? Peterson says it this way, poets tell us what our eyes, blurred with too much gawking, and our ears, dulled with too much chatter, miss around and within us. Poets use words to drag us into the depth of reality itself. Poetry grabs us by the jugular. Far from being cosmetic language, it is intestinal. I love that image. As it turns out, the Exodus story contains the first song that appears in all of the Hebrew Bible. Right after the account of the Red Sea parting. So I'm going to use Peterson's poetic translation of it from the message as we look together at the song in Exodus 15. Okay, why don't you read with me? It's on your sheet and on the screen. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. Oh, you don't have to read it out loud, sorry. Just read along. Uh, They said, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. 
The chariots of Pharaoh and his army he has thrown into the sea, and his chosen officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They went down to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the abundance of your majesty, you have overthrown those who rise up against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing water stood upright like a heap. And the deep waters were solidified in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will chase. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire will be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearful in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. By your loyal love, you will lead the people whom you have redeemed. You will guide them by your strength to your holy dwelling place. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling with will seize the leaders of Moab. The inhabitants of Canaan will shake. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as stone until your people pass by, O Lord. Until the people whom you have bought pass by. And you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. In the place you made for your residence, O Lord, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh came with his chariots and his footmen into the sea. And the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the Israelites walked on dry land in the middle of the sea. This is the first song in the Bible. This is the first instance in Israel's narrative where they describe corporate worship. And this song, written down centuries after the story it recounted, is the first place the ancient songwriters had a chance to describe what they saw as significant in the Exodus story. This is where the story goes beyond asking, what happened? Or what do these things mean intellectually? This song communicates how, for the people of God, this story spoke to their hearts. So what kind of a song is it? I think, at least in part, it is first a song of identity. A song of identity. A song that celebrates that this God has been on the side of their ancestors and now he's on the side of them. Right? Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God. I will exalt him. The same God that was with Jacob. The same God that was with Isaac. The same God that was with Abraham is with me. I could trust in that. I'm part of this story. It's a song of identity. It's also a song of deliverance. A song of deliverance. The song song writer sings of a God who's not content to leave God's people in suffering. 
Even when those people are without hope, this God moves cosmic forces to deliver them from a place of oppression to a place of freedom. Verse 9, the enemy said, I will chase, I will overtake, but you stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them, and by your loyal love, you will lead the people whom you've redeemed. You will guide them by your strength to your holy dwelling place. This God made a way where there was no way. This God opened water before them. This God took on God's self the work of vanquishing the enemy, doing for the delivered what they could not do for themselves. I believe this first song in the Bible has to be our key to really interpreting why the story matters. It helps us understand why the story is there. The story may or may not perfectly reflect historical events. We can't really know that, but we can know that it rings true because the song is true. The song speaks someone's real experience of God's deliverance in the face of profound desperation, loss, and against overwhelming odds. It centers oneself in God's provision. It grapples with hope for the future, grounded in an experience of God's faithfulness. Whatever the historic events that prompted them, this genuine expression of provision, hope, connection to a living God, that is inspiring. It is grounding and centering. It is the stuff that nurtures faith. It leads us to ask, along with those celebrating on the shores of the Red Sea or centuries later, as these words were composed, as the remnant of Israel is rebuilding their temple that was destroyed, or centuries after that, as slaves in the deep south of America heard this story and saw in it hope for their own liberation. All of these people together cry, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearful in praises, working wonders? The song brings us to why the story is told why it matters to the people of God. For me, acting had been an escape from myself. It had been a way to hide in someone else's story. But songwriting gave me an opportunity to live inside my own. It gave me the chance to have power over my life's circumstances rather than having them having power over me. It gave me an opportunity to work out my faith, to wonder aloud to God, to find some semblance of meaning and a hope in the wake of personal trauma and grief. My fears became fuel for creativity. My memories of abuse that I had tried so hard to shut down became avenues for me to open up myself unto others, as well as the divine welcoming the acceptance and love from them that I so needed to bring healing and freedom. Putting my journey into song was a key part of my deliverance, of my liberation. So as we end, I want to invite all of us to consider, both individually and communally, what are the songs of identity or deliverance that we need to sing? What are the songs of identity or deliverance that we need to sing? What are the journeys we need to give voice to? What are the wounds 
we need to display? What are the victories we need to proclaim? What are the paintings we need to paint, the drawings we need to draw, the poems we need to compose? Where are the silences we need to fill? What experiences within us cry out for expression? What songs do we want our children and our children's children to remember us by? What songs do we want our children to remember us by? A friend recently asked me if I had more space in my life, which, you know, now that the school year is getting going, it it could happen. What would I like to spend it doing? And it took me a moment to think of an answer. I'd been in such a state recently of busyness and just doing the thing in front of me that needs to get done that it's been, it was hard to think of, like, if I actually had time to choose to do something, what would I do with it? But after thinking for a bit, I think it was clear. I'd like to give time again to writing some songs. I hunger, not just for an opportunity to express myself, to sort through my own heart, but I feel in this season a new hunger to be finding words together to give to our communal journey. Our communal journey of pain, experienced loss, as well as finding companionship in places of exile and experiencing the beginning of hope for a promised land. This is what I want to make space for in my own life in this season to come, but I wonder if it might not also be something God is calling a number of us to nurture, to give room to individually and corporately, whether it be through music, or through other creative expression. So as I've said, this teaching is wrapping up this origin stories series. And the series I'm intending to start in two weeks is called Reconstructing Faith. My hope is to give voice and acknowledgement to all the ways that a number of us have actually been deconstructing various parts of our spiritual lives, But I also hope that together we can begin to envision something built out of the rubble. Even if we're not ready to like put the pieces together and start building, we're inviting God to give us an imagination for that happening. And I hope and pray that the stirring of poetry, song, and creative beauty and other expressions become a core component of this journey of rebuilding that I think we're going to take together. Because we too are God's redeemed. We too are God's delivered. We too have been claimed by one who wants to fight for us. We too have come to the end of ourselves and then have found God making a way where there was no way. We too have a promised land, amen? And we too have a call to sing about it. Amen.